Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in weekly to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. Well, welcome everybody to the Family Biz Show. I am your host, Michael Columbus with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. And I just wanna say thank you all for being here. We have got a great show today. We're gonna be talking about the new ambassadors of the community and when the next gen rises to the occasion. Uh, We have two incredible guests. We've got Justin White with us and Jonathan Goldhill. Welcome gentlemen, appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. So as we always do, you know, what I'd like to, for you to do is, um, Justin, if you could just kind of give us a synopsis of, you know, your story, you know, the family business, do, we'll do the two minute version because we're going to spend the most of the time talking about that. But how did, you know, give us a little bit about it. How's that? Sounds like a plan. Well, thanks for having me on today, Michael. Excited to dive into the story. So, uh, you know, I, my parents started a K&D landscaping back in 1986, small mom and pop family operation. And we talked a lot about that business today. And uh, fast forward, you know, two minute version, right? 2015, I was about 25, 26 in the transition from the first generation to the second generation. And uh, my brother, my sister and I uh, were given the opportunity to buy into our family business. And I was appointed CEO shortly thereafter. And over that course of the last five years, Jonathan and I have been working together and we've successfully grown the business from, you know, about a one to $2 million organization to today, a a humming $10 million organization with just about a hundred employees. So really an exciting story, a lot of ups and downs, right? It's never this nice vertical uh, growth curve. It's always, you got all these, these ups and downs and, and emotions of the family business. So I'm excited to dive into some of that. I, I live here in Santa Cruz, California. We live right here on the central coast. So we do a lot of coastal beach homes. Uh, we do maintenance and, and we also do uh, industrial and commercial large scale insulation, uh, primarily in the public work and prevailing wage sector. So that's kind of our business. That's our little uh, synopsis and I'm excited to dive deeper into it. Awesome, then- thank you. Jonathan, so as I, I always say, you know, how did you end up working with family-owned businesses? And uh, give us give us your, a little bit about your story. Sure. So uh, originally from New York, uh, raised in New York, moved to Los Angeles at the age of 20. Uh, my family had a very large uh, clothing manufacturing company making men's suits back in Philadelphia and New York. It was sold when I was a young child. My grandparents continued to operate it, but it didn't make it through the fourth generation. There just wasn't enough interest uh, from family members at that point, but it was very large. And so uh, it spun off a lot of money to, uh, to the children and grandchildren. It gave me a little bit of freedom to get started. I moved to California 
and bounced around a little bit, uh, got involved in some entrepreneurial ventures, started an art and clothing company. I thought it was going to be very successful, uh, but it wasn't family. And I had a really bad partner choice. He was a reckless uh, user of, of drugs and other things that got problematic to manage. I went back to business school. I ran into some guy, his name was John Davis. He was working in a corner office. And John Davis, if you don't know him, is a very successful family business consultant who uh, went to Harvard. And I thought, family business, that's pretty interesting. But I knew I was going on the entrepreneur and consulting track and I was consulting entrepreneurs and built an organization that consulted, trained and financed entrepreneurs. Uh, we grew that to a largest regional company and uh, with a national uh, uh, recognition and, and brand, if you will. Um, and so I've always been consulting entrepreneurs and, and family businesses for 30 years. But I started to realize like the assignments and the clients that I enjoyed the best were the ones where there were family and there were family issues. One, uh, they were more loyal uh, to, their, to their people and also to their consultants and coaches. And there was more opportunity to work in between the, the, in between the cracks that, you know, the unspoken words that happen between uh, a father and their son or, you know, siblings, and that I could play a, a good role in that space. So Great. that's kind of my story. I'm, I'm, uh, a, I'm certified in scaling up coaching. Uh, I use uh, some of the tools and concepts from EOS. Uh, which you're familiar with, and uh, really switched to coaching from consulting in 2004. And uh, it's been a great shift. So that's my business. And I also just recently published a book where uh, Justin is featured in the book. It's called Disruptive Successor. And uh, it is a guide for driving growth in your family business. Um, people can find out about it at disruptivesuccessor.com. Love it. Oh. Again, thank you both for being here. We've got a lot to cover. And I, you know, realistically, this could be about a four hour seminar, in my opinion, <laughs> after talking to the two of you doing the pre-show the pre prep. So everybody hang on to your hats and just kind of hold on here. This is, there's a lot to go through. The, the one piece that I want to, you know, make sure that that's clear to people so that we, as we're going back and forth, you guys met each other around 2015, is that correct? 2016? 15, so you've only been think, working yeah. together for you know a short period of time. It's not like it's you know a, a 30 year, 20 year relationship or something. Um, so you know, in a short period of time, you accomplished an awful lot of things. So hats off to you. And the way I kind of describe this, and tell me, and, and Justin, feel free to tell me if this feels right. But it's not like Jonathan came in and did the work. It wasn't, you know, J Jonathan, you know, what it wasn't like, you know, everything just, you met Jonathan, then boom, magic, everything, you know, came together. But he was kind of like Yoda and you were kind of like Luke. And you had a guide and a mentor and somebody to kind of put the guardrails up to say, you know, you might want to think about this and, and help you to put together, you know, some systems that you might not have put in place, you probably would have got there eventually because you're a smart guy and whatnot, but it sped up the process. Is that fair? Yeah, I'll dive even a little deeper into that is Jonathan, when we first started meeting, we didn't jump directly into the business and start just, you know, growing. It was a lot of 
talking about what we wanted to do, what success looked like, and also how to be a good student. So he, he really focused on, on helping to set and build, you know, the parameters of what coaching and, uh, you know, being a student of a coach is really, because some people, uh, they're, they're great and they're coachable, so to speak, and others feel like they already have all the answers and they know what, what to do and they're not as coachable. So we spent a lot of time in the first six months diving into what it means to be coachable, what it means to be humble, and what it means to question everything you know. Because when you think you know everything and you, you don't need any more information, then a coach isn't going to be able to help you. So Jonathan really took a lot of time to understand myself, understand the family, understand the dynamic, and help me in turn understand what I need to do to be a good student and to open up and actually embrace the opportunity that I had in front of me. So we laid a lot of groundwork there before we really even started to, to take off and, and grow the business. Fabulous. Also, Michael, if I can just add to that, I was a pretty avid reader of business books when I met Justin and uh, I've read a lot of business books. I, and uh, by the way, for anyone who's going to write a book, you really have to stop reading other people's books to write your own book. If you're <laughs> going to be covering some of this, like I had it completely fast from reading business books for a while, but, but I would mention a book one or two books, maybe during the course of a session. And within the next week, Justin had already picked up a copy and was, you know, hundred pages into it. Right. So, you know, he was a voracious learner of whatever it was that I was sharing. So it, it worked really well like that. That's great. One of the things we always say is leaders are learners. Um, yep. You have to, if you're going to lead, you have to be learning. So congrats. That's great. Justin hats off. Um, Jonathan, you know, just based on what Justin just said, uh, that's pretty interesting because I would say most coaches dive right in to let's, you know, make an impact on the business. And it was really smart strategically that you said, let me make sure I'm making an impact on the leader first. Yeah, you can't change the business unless you can change the person first, I think. Right. I mean, it's just like if you want to be an entrepreneur, the first thing you should probably work on is your mindset. What's yeah. your what's your you know, what is your own reality around being an entrepreneur? What are the obstacles that block you? Let's get clear about that and right. let's start removing that. Let's start working on your energy level, your your your, you know, your excitement, your enthusiasm, your ability to inspire other people. If you can't work on that stuff then you can't really lead. So leading, leadership starts with having a vision and, and then you can, your strategy, your direction, your plans, all that stuff cascades down from that. But first you have to have the vision. Love and it. It's, you know, and, and also like, the, and this is a quote roughly from BC Forbes, who said, you know, the business of living is living, not business. So, right, you, so you have to start with what I want my life to look like and then make your business goals around that. Because otherwise, you know, people who start with business goals and, you know, set up monstrous, you know, business goals, they crowd out their entire life. And, you know, business is an entity outside of ourselves, but life is not an entity outside of ourselves. So, so start with yourself. We're, uh, we're eagerly awaiting 
the, um, the online course that you're going to develop around that so we can share that across the country because I think that six-month course would be phenomenal for a lot of people. Thank you. Um, now, what, if I could add to that just a little bit, one of, the, one of the things that really stood out for me is developing the values, not only the values of the business, the core values of the business, which drives you know hiring, firing, decision-making, all that, but the, the values of, of the leader too. You know, what, what is a leader value? Do they want to, you know, sit on a beach and work four hours a week? Or do they want to create an opportunity to pick and choose where they want to put their time into their business and build a team around them? And, and so the values, I think, have to align. And figuring those values out is not an easy task. We can all say, I, you know, I, I value family. I value happiness. I value money, whatever. But truly deep down, when you go deep into the values, you find a whole nother level of yourself that you didn't really know existed. And when you start to align those values of the leader and the family with the values of the business, that's where you can unlock this hidden potential. And, and we spend a lot of time going deep into the values and deep into the purpose of, of you know, the business and, and where we are today. Great. So, your story is unique. And I mean, I've been doing this for a while. Jonathan, you've been doing this for a while. I don't, I don't know another story where at 25, 26 year old, years old, the, the, the controlling generation turned over the reins. So, you, you know, your parents were still on the younger side of things and still are on the young side of things, I would know because, you know, I'm in that age group that's very young, just so very that you young. know. Very young. Um, <laughs> and uh, tell us about that. Walk us through what happened. Yeah, lots of, lots to unpack. I would say, you know, going all the way back, I want to definitely go all the way back to when I was uh, in school. And, you know, in eighth grade, I was taking half of my classes. I would walk over to the high school and take classes at the high school because I had elevated through middle school and junior high so quickly that algebra and some of these other um, classes I was going to high school for. And so by the time I got into like freshman, sophomore year, I'd already taken care of a lot of my math and biology and, and, and credits like that. So I quickly, by the time I was 16, I was personally, I was done with high school. And I was, I was yeah, I wanna continue with some college, but I wasn't looking for a four year. So at 16, um, I dropped out of high school. I was a junior and it was uh, going into the second semester. So it was like around this time of the year, I went to my parents and said, I I'm kind of done with this. I feel like I've learned everything. I'm tired of, of the day-to-day -day high school uh, drama and everything that goes into it. I want to work for the family business. And this was in 2006 and we didn't know it, but there was a huge crash coming and as we kind of started to go into, I went into independent studies and started working for my dad, uh, 07 happened. And, and the idea of pouring all my time into the family business to make sure that we get through this became a big priority for me. And so that really kicked me into the business at a very young age, younger than most people. And of course, I, you know, I was kind of looked at as, as the black sheep of the family. I dropped out of high school. How can my parents allow this? Uh, but, you know, I kept going and, and kept learning and I learned on the job. I learned from foremen. I learned from people who've been working for my dad for 15, 20 years at the time. And so by the time I got to the point of 25, my parents decided after 30 years of marriage, they were going to 
go their separate ways and my mom wanted to get bought out of the company, it was just kind of the natural next step for me to take over as a CEO. Now it wasn't just, okay, sounds good. Here you go, son. There's a lot of discussion back and forth. And I definitely was than your average second generation would. I really wanted it. And so uh, when my mom moved to Oregon, it opened up this opportunity for me to really become a peer to my dad. And that's when we started to see each other as peers, hopefully. I think he saw me as a peer. And he basically, I don't know how he did it. I don't know if I could do it at 51, but he looked at me and he believed that I had what it, what it took to be the CEO of this company. And he gave me the reins. He, he handed over the keys. And that's something I think that is the key to our success today is he stepped aside, not completely away, but he stepped aside and said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand beside you and I'm going to let you take some risk. I'm going to let you make some gambles and make some decisions that, you know, I'm going to support you, but, but they're going to be your decisions. And the ability for me to have that autonomy and have that flexibility at such a young age, I was motivated and I was hungry to prove to him and my mom and my entire family that I had what it's, what it took. And I see a lot of my peers uh, then and now still who are just getting into that CEO role or maybe, you know, COO role, you know, second in command, the dad or, or mom will give them a little bit and then, and then take it away as soon as they make a little failure. But failure is how we learn. And so when I made failures, my dad didn't take anything away. He just said, Hey, I know you can do better than that. Or I'm a little disappointed in that. And that makes you go back and figure out what do I need to do to fix this and, and become successful, learn from that failure. So I think failure is really a key part of this whole growth process. And that's where my dad being willing to let me fail and me having someone like Jonathan or me having Jonathan meeting with on a weekly basis and asking me, what's your motivation level today? On a scale of one to 100, what is it? And if it's anything below a 99, we've got something to talk about. And so that whole dynamic kind of was, was the perfect antidote to, I think, what a lot of families don't get right. And that's, that's the control and, and turning over control. So I think that's kind of where it started. It started when I was a young kid, like high school, but it really came together at 25, 26, when my dad saw me, I think, as a peer and, and gave me that opportunity to fail and then in turn succeed. Great. So Michael, Michael, there's an, uh, this is a story that I didn't know all the details and background. It's a pleasure to hear that, Justin. And uh, um, yeah, I had a different image of Justin as a high school student. So I didn't realize he had already finished half of high school by the time he was in eighth grade, which is really fitting, actually. It makes more sense um, because, like I've said earlier, you're really fast learner and a quick learner and a hungry learner. But, you know, the unsung hero in this whole story is his dad, Yeah. right? Because there are not that many dads that would step out of the way and, and say what he's, you know, and act like a peer and, you know, give him the, the rope, you know, to hang himself or fail um, and just say, you know, you can do better. So that, that's a, that's, those are really encouraging words. And I've always, Kendall's a very quiet, understated um uh, person and so i think that he is he deserves more credit than uh, than maybe i've i've given him and uh i've given a lot of the credit to justin in the past but 
So that's that's an interesting point. The other thing is that, um, and this would be interesting to ask you, Justin. So when you joined in in 2008, when you had to hunker down, you know, um, a lot of kids join their family business out of a should, you know, or a must. My family needs me. I must take care of the family. They're they're asking. They don't, you know, they don't have the money to be able to pay outside people to help us. We we have jobs that need to get done. And, you know, or it's your responsibility. And I've seen this in a number of families. So it, it sounded more like it wasn't a should as it was more like, I must do this. I want to do this. So. It was. And I, I look back in those times and I am so, I'm so appreciative for those times. I'm grateful for those times because what it, what it gave uh, my dad and I is we were on the same side of this giant battle. And they, you know, to my parents, they did everything they could to save the business. They took out a second mortgage. They liquidated their IRAs in late 2007, like at the worst possible time. They lost out on probably half a million dollars worth of money at the time that probably would be five or 10 million today. And, and that money is gone because they put it into the business and they put it into paying their employees. And that was my, my parents probably, as we look back, the biggest mistake, but maybe not because we kept people on payroll when we didn't have work. And they were working at my dad's ranch. They were doing things that like cleaning cars. I mean, we did whatever we could to keep people busy. There wasn't, it wasn't producing revenue. Uh, and that's what led to us almost going bankrupt. But those, those relationships of our employees, and, and today we have you know, I think six or seven that have been with us over 20 years that went through that with us. And they are so loyal and we are so loyal to them because of that time. But for me, it was working in the field, running equipment, running crews during the day, you know, from five to, to three or four. And then from four to eight, I'd be in the office. We had this little office in an old hospital that was, you know, an old hospital room. It was really creepy, but we'd be there until eight or nine We'd eat dinner there most nights and we'd be working on estimates and trying to land jobs that 20 or 30 landscapers were bidding on. And it was just like a race to the bottom. It was, it was ridiculous. And we'd land these jobs and we'd be like, we're going to lose money. And we'd have to figure out a way to not lose money on the job. And that taught me a lot. That whole process of scarcity of like, we just bid this job, lose money, but it's my responsibility to go out and, and actually be the foreman on this job and find a way to make a little bit of money. And, and that whole uh, dynamic and process brought us closer together and also gave me a respect for how bad things can get. And today, every single day I wake up just thankful that we have work, thankful that we have enough um, of a schedule and backlog to keep the crews busy. But I always know in the back of my head, like I can turn on CNBC and the market could drop 20, 30, 40% and we may be out of work tomorrow. I mean, cancel contracts get canceled like that. So you know, you always have that in the back of your mind because I went through that. So it was very valuable. It, it almost sounds to me like you've been blessed with two guides. Sound like, you know, when, when you went through this in 2006, seven, eight, nine, you, you had your dad there coaching you more than, more than being peers. It almost, you know, he was coaching you through, all right, what's next and allowing those mistakes and, and being okay with that. And then 2015, you meet Jonathan. So you get, you know, round two of that. That's oh, awesome. Absolutely. And I don't want to downplay my mom in this situation because she was really, 
when we go back to values and we go back to doing the right thing and we go back to opening the door for strangers. I mean, that's what my mom taught me at a young age of, of this kind of this Southern hospitality kind of mindset. You know, we grew up on a ranch, raised horses and all the animals. And so she was always the one behind the scenes. Like me and my dad would be out there working our ass off, but she would be the one in the back making sure that money was in the bank account because it's one thing to do the work. It's another thing to actually have cash in the bank account to pay your employees, right? Like profit isn't cash. Cash is cash. And so she was always behind the scenes. Somehow, I don't know how to this day, she made it work, but she made it work. We never missed a payroll. The check always came in, whether she had to drive across town to pick it up from our vendor or whatever she did, she made it work. And she was definitely um, a solid rock that me and my dad could always depend on to no matter what challenges came, she would always make it work. I don't know how she did it. She always made it work. And that was pretty So let's fast forward, you know, there's a, I use the terms, these are my words. I say, you know, a business is a lifestyle business versus a, you know, an equity business. Um, But there there came a a turning point for you somewhere along the lines that, you know, and, and feel free to fill in any gaps where it was, I'm, you know, we're, we're at a million, $2 million of revenue and it's time and it's time to grow. It's time to take this step up. Where was that initial turning point? And then where does Jonathan come into the story? Well, I think it has to do, there's a lot of factors in play. And I'll, I'll start with kind of the, the most shallow factor, which is our generation, the millennial generation. Like we're fascinated with money, Facebook or any social feed for millennials, you're going to see these pictures of these $15 million mansions of like, this is success. This is what, you know, you could do. And and there's, so there's this, there's cultural change for millennials, I think from, you know, where it went from the baby boomers of, Hey, let's create a good family that can put food on the table. Because before that, putting food on the table was a success in itself to millennials being very materialistic and wanting to just really it's ego, right? Who has the biggest business? You go to these business seminars back before COVID and it's always the same conversation. What's your revenue? I mean, that's a question that everyone asks and it's always comes down to this ego and, and millennials. And I think it's changing a little bit with generation Z, they're getting a little more humble, but millennials and even the X generation were very materialistic. So at first it was kind of this ego driven thing of like, I want to build a giant business, but it quickly became a deeper purpose for me of, I want to create jobs for my community. I want to create success and a legacy for my family. I want to give my family and my extended family, my friends and my community, a place where they can go and get a job, put their heart and soul into it and create a career, create a destination company where people really can, can exceed their limitations and exceed their expectations of what success really is. So, you know, it, it starts with materialistic and ego and it starts and it, and it quickly becomes a necessity and, and a deeper purpose of providing opportunity for my family because let's go back to 07, 08. And I saw my family, my aunts and uncles struggling because they couldn't find jobs and and they were unemployed. And so many of my friends and and relatives were affected by that. I wanted to create a stable business that people can go to and be able to put their life's work into and be successful. So it, it, it really transformed into something bigger and the bigger the business, the more impact you will have. So that's really kind of the, the purpose of the growth is it, it came down to having a stable place that our family and my community can go to, to be successful. 
Where so Michael, I showed up at the, what would have been, I guess, an inflection point in Justin just getting the title of uh, CEO. And uh, I think it was probably in the first nine months we worked together, you, you got that title, Justin. Yeah. And it was also an inflection point of, hey, because I, I remember I, my first question is, you know, what specific measurable results do you want to get from our coaching together? And at the time he was like, I want to be, I want a roadmap for how to build this into a $5 million company. And so that was two and a half, three X what they were currently doing. And so we needed to put that roadmap together. And, you know, that was an inflection point. Like there was, there's never been a dip since it's been a, I don't know what the 35% maybe compounded annual growth rate every year there since. Um, so I think that uh, what's the expression the the teacher, the student meets the teacher when the, when the, when the student is ready. And so, you know, it was a perfect, just before a perfect storm, right. um, he was ready and, and I showed up and, you know, it was a, it was a trial run to begin. So he was testing it out. His parents were, his mom was probably not so in favor. His dad was like, I'm not so sure about this. Um, and he was like, I, I need this. And, and my concept has always been, you know, what got you here isn't going to get you there. And I'm not suggesting that I'm the rich dad and the other dad was the poor dad, but like, you need that other, like, whether that's a father, coach, mentor type figure, who's going to provide some alternative perspective and be a stand, take a stand for that other person you want to become you know, or for that person you want to become, sorry. Great. When you met, so earlier you said, I didn't hear that story that Justin shared with us earlier. What was your impressions of Justin when you guys first met? What, what, what was your, you know, the, what were the notes that you kept in your, in your log that he doesn't, he hasn't seen yet? I'd have to go back to them <laughs> to be quite honest. I don't know what they were either. And it's been, you know, uh, we've had a, enjoyed a close relationship with each other for the last half a dozen years. I, I don't, you know, I recall a, a young man who was aspirational and wanted to, to really grow this business. And, you know, there was just some good fundamentals there. Um, I never had to help them in an area where I don't have incompetence. So I don't know anything about landscaping per se, right? I had worked with maybe 75 landscape companies, either through my seminars or through one-on-one -on -one or through groups. Um, but I, you know, I couldn't tell you how to lay down like, you know, turf or, you know, how to put a rock wall. So operationally, he was skilled in that. And that was always my value proposition was like, you guys are really good at what you do. And I'm really good at what I do. You know, most of my clients don't have college educations or business degrees, but they know how to landscape. Um, and they know plants and things like that. But I know business. I know business books. I know about leadership. I know all those, like some of the soft skills and management and leadership skills. And so it's, it's been a good marriage for me with a lot of landscape clients. Great. Um, so Michael, if I could, I just want to add one more thing to this. I think as you transition as a second generation business owner and you move, you know, you work under your father, your mother for, for a dozen years. And you get to the point where you're like, I kind of, I think I've learned everything from them. You 
do you think? You take over and, and you start working with a business coach. And what you find out is the business coach then provides you with this deeper like understanding that you then go back and you ask new questions to your, to your parents that you've never asked before. And you unlock this new data and this new information that you've never learned before. So it's not so much that I, you, you outgrow your, your parents and you become the CEO and you blossom with a coach. It's you now go back to your parents and be like, so how'd you guys do this? Or what about this? And you start to almost talk a different language that they understand because they've been in business for 30 years that your coach helps you unlock. And, and that right there, that connection to this day has not only improved the relationship with my parents and specifically my father, but it has helped me mine more information from him that I don't think I would have ever had access to because I didn't have the right questions. And we always want to, we always want to jump to the answer. Everyone thinks they have the answers, but really at the end of the day, to become a good leader, I think it's really all about finding and, and looking for the right questions to ask. And that's where Jonathan, for me specifically, has is, is helped me find those questions and then go and ask them to, to then grow my own capacity. Great. Let's change the topic for just a second. We'll come back to more about the, the growth and whatnot. Let's talk about, you know, we have, my notes are in here. Let's talk about the messiness, the, uh, you know, just the, you, you've got family and business together and there's a difference between generations. So, you know, between the, you know, between the two of you, if you could just, you know, share, you know, Jonathan, and let's start with you this time. Can you, you know, what were some of the, the family dynamic things that sometimes were messy as you were going through the last six years together? Do you mind sharing some of those yeah, things from your perspective? I, I think that uh, the, the White family is a highly functional family as families go. So there wasn't fortunately a lot of messiness from my perspective. Um, there, was, uh, there was a need to bring Kendall into the coaching equation at one point and do some one-on-one -on -one work with him where he would reflect. And so he was a participant, not just an observer. And so we did some work together and, you know, he didn't have the same zeal or, uh, you know, excitement around the work, I think that, that Justin did. And then, uh, but he, he participated, he fully engaged. Um, and Justin has a brother and a sister, a sister who's minimally involved in the business, but a brother who's majorly, you know, like hundred percent involved in the business. And there's sometimes friction between the boys. Justin's the older brother and, you know, the clear leader uh, among the two. And Shane's a, a hard worker, but he approaches things differently. And so managing sometimes the, the discord that occasionally shows up between the two of them and, you know, having them have like unfiltered conversations so that everything becomes spoken. You know, and, you know, sometimes uh, the, the, the conversation around transfer of equity, I think, is always a touchy subject, as is the, uh, the conversation around what should my compensation be? What am I worth to the business? So, you know, we've had some difficult conversations amongst the three or four of us where I've been sometimes an observer, sometimes a facilitator. But I think that's the messiness, I think, is it's mostly around money and control 
for families. Um, yeah. So I'm seeing it another, in another family business that, uh, that I'm just starting to do some work with. And, you know, it's a very similar story. There's a disruptor there and it's around control and yet it's more around control in that family, I think, than the money. Sure. No. I have a, one of my mentors wrote a book, uh, you might know, Dean Fowler wrote Love, Power, and Money. So and you right into that thing. It's who, you know, who loved, who loved who most, you know, who's got control, who's got the power, and where's the money going? And it, it really does, inside the family, boil down to those things a lot, oftentimes. So Justin, you know, as Jonathan's talking about that, I, I, what would you say... Because obviously you've made it to the other side. It doesn't mean that you don't have things that you're working on or don't have things where you've fallen into chaos at mo- you know, at times, but, but you don't go from where you were to where you are today without having set up some guardrails to make sure that those relationships don't go off the reservation, so to speak. Do you want to talk about how you're able to do those things or what are you know, some of the guidelines or what are some of the you know, the governance rules that you guys have put into place to kind of keep you safe? Yeah, there's a lot because it is a dynamic situation that's always changing. So at the very beginning, there's a lot of like back to the equity part of like how much, how much sweat equity am I putting in the business? So yeah, maybe I'm getting a salary of, of $80,000, but I think I'm contributing $160,000 worth of, of value. So that I want to see $80,000 a year in what we call sweat equity. And, and does that, does everyone agree with how you feel about your compensation? And the chances are probably not. <laughs> so then you got to figure out like how this works and, and then how does the sweat equity work? Does, does my, my father who, you know, let's say you own 60%, is he like a hard stop at 51% and he's never going to go below that? Or is he willing to come down to like a three-way partnership and maybe one day be more of like a five or 10% partner given the business scales to where we want it to scale. So I think it's a lot of, of discussion, open communication, which comes down to having to be extremely um, candid, having to be extremely open and honest with your feelings because you know agreements aren't worth anything if like inside you really don't agree. You're just agreeing to agree to end the conversation or in the meeting but deep down, you're like, this is BS. I don't like, I'm getting totally screwed here. Then you're going to have issues down the, down the road. And it's so important that you're completely open. And sometimes you may hurt the feelings of others. You may frustrate and, and create anger from others. But if you don't share your true feeling, then it's always going to have that little bit of resentment. And you're always going to have this little you know, chippy conversations and people are going to wonder where it's coming from because you agreed to this in the meeting, but then you're showing frustration around this agreement. So extreme candor is important. I think the other part is expectation of family owners and, and family, mem- family employees who are owners. So for my sister, you know, she's kind of, she's moved to Hawaii and she's transitioned out of the business as an employee, but remains as an owner and, and a small minority partner but we continuously have conversations about, is that fair? Is it fair for her to be an owner, but not an employee? And so that word fair comes up a lot in family discussions. And it really has no business to be in the discussion because let's face it, life isn't fair. 
things don't happen in a fair manner, like nature, nothing's fair in this world. And so when you start bringing fair into the conversation, you can get derailed pretty quickly. So we really try to stay away from that and talk more about what is, you know, what is a, an agreement that we could come to that we all maybe don't love, but we can live with. And that's where that extreme candor comes back to play. Um, we have my cousin, Jessica, coming in as an owner. And so we've put her on this plan of, of coming into the shareholder meetings and starting to immerse herself with the ownership team. And January 1st, she's going to become a 3% owner in the business, which we're all super excited for because she's put so much of her you know, blood, sweat, and tears into the business. We're really excited to now be able to reward her for all that hard work that she's done. But it also adds a level of complexity that I'm not sure we fully flushed out. So yeah, we may be on the other other side of, of the initial you know process, but we're still in the middle of the the discovery process of growing the business and bringing in more family owners. Uh, this will make a five person ownership team as of January 1st, which you know whenever you get over three people, it, it's tough. Sure. <laughs> Agreed. A lot of different dynamics, but those are just some that we've come up with and, and run into. And Jonathan hit on the compensation one, which is always a hot topic. And we've got a lot of good tactics on dealing with those. I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but I would just say for the listeners out there, just be open, be candid, and, and have another you know non-biased third-party person in the meeting as much as possible, because otherwise you can go quickly from a discussion to an attack. Yeah. And you know, as family members, like me and my brother, we grew up, you know, fighting and, and we've been best friends. We've been mortal enemies over the course of our, you know, 30 years. Um, but today we're like best friends, you know, and I think that has a lot to do with Jonathan's help. I think with us just fighting it out, like it's like almost like a fight to the death. And one of us is going to remain in the business and the other one may not be in the business anymore. But having that mediator, having that third party in the meeting helps to kind of um, calm the conversation down and accomplish a lot more. Great. Jonathan, it sounds, you know, like the, the coaching process that you have um, and, and jump in at any time, but when you start with the leader, you're talking about teaching them to be learners, teaching them how to be a leader, teaching them, you know, what are the skills necessary to build that, that base of the pyramid, so to speak, that foundation that they can, they can build from. And then, when you're working with the teams, the, 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 the word that came to mind for me was how do I get them to trust one another to be able to have these conversations and, and, to, and to have conflict between themselves without, you know, a healthy conflict, not that, you know, not, you know, and, and be able to voice themselves. Does that sound fair that, you know, trust and conflict, kind of those foundations for the team? hundred percent. I mean, uh, everyone read the book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. I think uh, every leadership team has probably read that book by now. Um, you know, trust, conflict, commitment, those are some of the basics and the foundation is based on trust. So the ability to have difficult conversations with each other and to hold each other accountable. I mean, you know, part of my coaching when I first onboarded Justin and um, all clients back then was, you know, uh, some ground rules around how the coaching is going to work. And those ground rules also play well uh, with the leadership team. So one of those ground rules is 
to call it and be called on it. Meaning, if you see something that's foul, you know, call it out. If you are playing foul yourself, be willing to be called out. And so you have to be able and willing to have those, you know, radically candorous conversations with your, your coworkers. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, again, I, I think that the family has done a good job of creating the context for that to happen. And, uh, and again, I, I, I see Kendall's on the call, but I think he's the unsung hero here. He's the guy who creates the framework for this is okay. People can engage in conflict and we'll work through it because we're, you know, we're working together as a family. That's what we do around here. Love it. Okay. I, I, I'm going to be sending an email to Kendall afterwards because I got a whole nother show in the back of my head. <laughs> you know that, so. Yeah. And we're going to be flies on the wall on that one. There you go. Um, so one of the things that, you know, is difficult, especially in a family business. And, you know, for those who haven't, you should read good to great, the Jim Collins thing, you know, let's get the right people in the right seats, doing the right things. Right. And, and you talked about, that Justin that you know even at times it was really hard what's that process like inside of the family business well it's difficult because in the family business you have the family owners who all want to be kind of at the top of the company but that doesn't mean that that's the right place for them and so one of our core values is humility and having you know a deep understanding of humility and also a deep understanding of respect allows you to go down that road of having a conversation, where should I be as part of this ecosystem of the business? And it doesn't always mean you should be at the top. And that's where the humility comes into place because, you know, a lot of people want to, I don't know, they have this preconceived notion of where they think that their, their value should be put or where they should be in the business. But once you start breaking it down and you really have these conversations, you find that they're much more of a you know, team builder than an outside salesman, or they're much more of an outside salesman than an internal team builder. And, and whatever their behavioral skills and, and uh, assets really align with, you got to find a way to get them in that position. And so it, it, you know, having the conversation with the family members who are also owners can get really difficult at time, and it can feel like you're disrespecting them or you know, not being fair. Um, so you have to have that, again, that extreme candor and that humility to talk about where you're best suited to, to be in this business and where you're going to be most happy. As for the rest of the employees, you know, it just comes down to really analyzing your people. And, you know, we use a lot of different tools. Uh, we've used DISC before. We're currently using Predictive Index, which is fabulous. We really love it. And it helps to align the behaviors with the behaviors of the, and the behaviors and needs of the position. So someone who you know, really enjoy, like really, really likes to follow the rules will be a better accountant than someone. I mean, if you tell me the speed limit is 55, I'm going to drive 58 or 60 just because I don't know why it's just how I'm, how I'm built. And so I'm not going to be a great accountant because I'm always looking for ways to change and manipulate and, and adjust. So really analyzing your people using, you know, we have so much software available to us today using something that's going to help you give an insight into where's, where's the natural ability of people is going to help you put them into the right seats. 
And then also it's follow-up monthly one-to-ones is huge for this because you can get that feedback, the feedback loop of how the people are feeling now that they're in that position is really key. Go to your but, you know, and Michael, of course, we use some of the classic tools used by, uh, you know, the things that's scaling up in EOS, the function accountability chart, the, the general electric top grading, AB, you know, perf- uh, uh, talent matrix, uh, the people evaluator, analyzer type tools. So we used and still use tools like that to make sure that people first are a core value fit and second, that they're in the right seat. Um, and then there's an accountability chart that's kind of, this is the idealized organization. And then people, are they the right fit for that particular seat? And what's the function or roles of that particular position? So, you know, staying congruent to that methodology um, and making it, con- you know, using all these methodologies combined to make sure you get the right people including the top grading system. They use a lot of from the who uh, Jeff smart and top grading uh, methodologies to make sure they're getting the right people um, in the company in the first place. Yeah. And, and I'll you know, just chime in on that. I did not utilize top grading in my own business for the longest time. And uh, five, six years ago, I got introduced to that. We started to go through that process and you know, I have admin meetings, you know, interviews for the admin position. And those are two, two and a half hour meetings plus a lunch. And so, you know, even the smallest position, it's so important because if there's a a values misfit, if there's a mishire in a four to a five person company, it hurts an awful lot. So we wanted to make sure that we got that right. And when we do the lunch, the whole team goes out to lunch with the person. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah, imagine having 20% of a large company's workforce be ineffective. Well, that's right. what it is when one person out of five is not, you know, pulling their weight. Yeah. So good stuff. Um, we're, we're seven minutes away and I want to be, you know, cognizant of time. Um, I've got two, you know, what were your keys to 25% growth and some of the mistakes that happened along the way? And I know that we're, you know, <laughs> We just might have to come back and revisit this, you know, six months from now, we'll get you back on here again. This is, I love everything that you guys are sharing. I hope that the listeners can, you know, really understand the power behind what Justin and Jonathan are sharing with us today. So growth. Right, Justin, keys to the growth. And then you want to talk about the annual budget, how you've been able to come yeah. so close to budget each year. Yeah. So a couple of keys to growth is, is knowing what you're good at and doing more of it. Growth doesn't mean stretching yourself out. It may just mean in increasing what you're already doing and what you're doing good. So it's knowing what to say yes to and knowing what to say no to, and then innovating in that space and really owning the market share. So become the educator. So for us, like landscape maintenance, HOA specifically, we do a lot of education to the community. I write a weekly column. We do advertising where we don't actually have a hook or a, or a catch, but it's more like, hey, did you know this? And so we do a lot of educating to gain market share. You've got to innovate. You've got to be the number one provider in your space that is doing things differently. You don't even have to do it right. If you're doing things differently and always analyzing how you're doing that, you're going to always have new customers coming in and your current customers are going to want to stay because they enjoy things always getting improved. So innovation, doing more what you're good at and setting clear expectations on growth. So if you just say, I want to grow, 
you're not, you know, what does that mean? You want to grow 1%, 100%, but it's setting a clear expectation of over the next five years, this is what every single year looks like. And we've done that since 2015. We've got it mapped out to 2030. And we have to update that almost every quarter, but definitely every annual planning session. So that's kind of the keys to our growth. As for the budget, yeah, for the last three years, we've been able to come within 2%, 1% of our top line, our gross profit, and our bottom line net profit budget. I mean, it's ridiculous. I don't know how we do it. I think the keys that I've learned is you got to bring everyone into the conversation of your annual budget early. So right now we're having conversations with all the way down to our foreman, you know, asking them about how things are going, if they're going to improve or if they, you know, how to change this. You got to set your pricing up really, really good. We use a product called Dynascape to set our pricing and keep estimating consistent. So no matter who's doing the bid, you're going to get that very, very similar pricing that translates obviously into the, into the income statement at the end of the day, what goes into the bank. And then it's measuring your budget every single week. And so you pick all the lines of your income statement and your balance sheet, and you write a name next to every single item and you create KPIs around those buckets. So whether it's sales or sales and marketing, cost of goods sold, labor, um, you know, financial fees, you assign someone and then you create a weekly KPI where you have your budget and then you have your, your actual and you review that weekly and you adjust. So right now, as of, you know, just uh, September 30th is the last close. We were looking at everything. We're within 1% of our revenue that we set up at the beginning of the year with 1% of our gross profit and profit is much higher than what our budget was. So I messed up there in a good way. Uh, but we're looking good this year. And that's before COVID even came a thing. We set this budget and locked it into place. It comes back to measuring your KPIs and getting input from your team. I think that's key. Anything to add to that, Jonathan? I just think that it's, you know, uh, it, it's time. It's really putting in the time and focusing on getting a budget done. A lot of clients that come to me, I ask them to do a budget. They slap stuff together. They don't really look at each number. They don't ask themselves, okay, how am I going to get to that number? You know, so we kind of, I, I think that the, there's probably more visualization going on here than with some of these other companies where we visualize what does the company look like uh, to be that size. I mean, Justin set out to cut operating expenses. I think it was either pre-COVID or just as we were going into COVID and very rigorous about, you know, checking in on that on a regular basis and setting specific operating expense cuts and reductions. And so really paying attention to it. It's, you know, I think a lot can be said about visualizing what you really want. This goes back to the beginning part of our conversation. Visualize what you really want. What does it look like? And then do the work to figure out, you know, what needs to be removed, what needs to be fixed, who needs to be changed, who needs to be, you know, put into a different seat to get to the result that you want. But like have a results orientation uh, with a no excuse kind of mindset. Great. You have to have an accountability partner or a coach or someone who's holding you accountable to those expectations. Otherwise, if it's yourself, you're never going to, I mean, no, right. never, probably not going to hit it. I, I am a coach and I hired a coach to coach my coach me through my business because it's sometimes it's just so hard to see that stuff. And when people find out what I'm paying my coach, they're like, wait a minute, you're paying them more than you're charging us. Like, yeah, I wanted somebody really, you know, 
<laughs> just I, I really wanted to be held accountable and I wanted you know the, the right thing in there and that's what I needed um I, I want to really we don't have time to go into the mistakes and I'm sorry Justin I know we wanted to talk about those things Jonathan oh, tell us how to how if somebody wanted to reach out to you how do they find you so you can find me through my website, thegoldhillgroup.com. You can email me, J-O-N, at thegoldhillgroup.com. And I'm sure you're on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. That's a great place to find me, Jonathan Goldhill, The Gold Hill Group. And the book is Disruptive Successors on Amazon. Make sure that you go out and grab Jonathan's book and um, dig into that. You'll find out more from, you know, Justin in there. Justin, for those, uh, you know, that are listening, we've, you know, in the California area, in your area, how do they find you? What is your website? Yeah, just Google K&D Landscaping will pop up. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn. And there's a lot of ways to get a hold of me on our website. On LinkedIn. Great. And I will say, I will say, I, me and I'd love to oh, Did uh, you get that. Sorry. Nope. You broke up a little bit. LinkedIn, or you can just Google K and D landscaping. Great. And if you go out to their website, it's really evident how the values of the company show up on that website. And I love that it's worth going and taking a peek at. So go and check them out. K and D landscaping. California is what I Googled and it was able to come up nice and easy. Gentlemen, this has been great. My name's Michael Columbus. This is the Family Biz Show. I'm with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. Feel free to check out our website, familywealthandlegacy.com. We love these shows and you guys were awesome. Really appreciate you sharing everything. Thank you very much, Michael. Have a great day. Great week. You Bye, too. everybody. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting-edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that, and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with The Family Biz Show. The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy, LLC, is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.